0: Happy Palm Sunday to everyone. I have the honor and privilege of inviting you to point your Bibles to John chapter 13 once again, working our way verse by verse through the gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one in the pew ahead of you and you can follow along. Um, If you're not familiar with how the Bible works, you'll find our reading this morning on page 900, page 900 of the pew Bible. The um, chapters are those big numbers and the verses are those little numbers. Um, when God enabled people like John to write this book, he did not write those numbers in there. Uh, that, those were added later for reference, and so when we read this morning, I'm going to be reading right past uh, the chapter division between chapter 13 and 14, and that's right because that is a bad place to put a chapter division. And uh, so, I just want you—I'm not going to acknowledge it. We're just going to move right through it, and I think you'll get a better sense of the flow of this passage if we do that. So, John chapter 13, we'll begin reading uh, in verse 33, and I'll read down to verse chapter 14, verse 3. John 13:33. These are the words of the Lord. Little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I've said to the Jews, so now I say also to you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I need you. Especially in this hour. I need you. As I stand before your people, those you have purchased with your son's blood. I am reminded, my words are not what they need to hear. They need to hear your words. So would you speak to them through your word, through your servant? May what I say be encouraging and strengthening to those who need it, convicting to those who need it, discomforting to those who are trusting wrongly. And Father, I pray that you would encourage us and sustain us in between the time when you came and the time when you will come again. Do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The more you fail, the more you will succeed. The more you try to impress people, the less impressed they'll be. The more available something is, the less people want that thing. No one goes to that restaurant anymore. It's just too crowded. George Orwell said, wrote, all animals are equal. Some animals are more equal than others. And Andy Warhol joked once, I am a deeply shallow person. These are examples of a paradox, Things, statements that seem contradictory, but they're true. There are many paradoxes in the Christian life. Jesus said famously, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. That's a paradox. More paradoxes in the Christian life are Christians are set free from the power of sin. Yet how often do we yield ourselves to it? We just sang it in that song. How I leave the God I love, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We're already saved, yet we must work out that salvation with fear and trembling. In Christ, we are made a new creation, one which is often beleaguered by the old man and his ways. We are slaves which have been set free. Some of our favorite Bible verses have deep paradoxes written into them. For example, Galatians 2.20 you probably know this by heart. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by, the, by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. One of my favorite paradoxes is Paul describing his work ethic in ministry. He says, I worked harder than any of them, but it wasn't I who worked, but the grace of God with me. The Christian life is a balance and tension between things that already are and yet things that aren't yet. Some have described the kingdom of God as already but not yet. A healthy Christian is one who simultaneously looks backward and looks forward. She looks backward to the cross where her Savior died, and she looks forward to the consummation when He will come again. She lives in the tension between those two things. Well, we meet that tension of the Christian life again in this passage. Jesus is going away, and yet he promises that he will return again. And meanwhile, in between those two, first coming and second coming, the disciples are left without a master, without the one that they've come to know, the one that they've come to love. Three years he has been with them, taught them, led them, Encouraged them and loved them. And now he's going away to a place he says they can't go, at least not yet. Well, you, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you realize here we are in the narrative of John's gospel, and we realize that Judas has already left, and he's on his unholy business to go betray the Lord to the authorities. The shadow of Jesus' cross is looming. In the, these are the last hours that the Lord Jesus has with his disciples before the cross. You know, if you've read the gospel, that these next several hours will be the darkest hours the disciples will ever experience. And they are deeply, no doubt deeply troubled to hear Jesus say that he's going away to a place they cannot follow. I suppose they would be wondering what you and I would be wondering. What would life be like without Jesus? Three years I've spent with this man. He has become my life. He holds my life together. He has given my life meaning and purpose. And now he's going away. Where does that leave me? who will teach me about God, who will heal the sick, who will call sinners to repentance. Jesus is my life, and Jesus is going away. But as John promised at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus had loved them to the end, and he wouldn't leave them alone. He's going to take care of them truly to the end. We'll see how he does this in the next coming weeks, but this morning, this passage shows us how Jesus is taking care of his disciples, loving them to the end by giving them three gifts in his absence, three things to sustain them in his absence. It's the same three things the Apostle Paul would describe later as unfailing, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And love. So the summary of my sermon this morning is this. Jesus sustains his disciples in the tension of kingdom life with Christ-like love, God-centered faith, and Christ-assured hope. Faith, hope, and love. We'll start with love. Spend about 40 minutes working our way through these verses. Let's begin at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I'm going to say it to you. Where I'm going, you can't come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. <clears throat> Notice he says to the, to the disciples, little children, little children. It's the only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus uses this phrase, little children. It's a very tender and loving and pastoral phrase. Now, it must have made an impact on the Apostle John because when John becomes a pastor and he writes a letter to his church, he uses that same phrase the Lord used seven times in addressing his congregation. Yet a little while I am with you, Jesus says, you will seek me. But where I'm going, you can't, you can't follow me there. I can't imagine how devastating that must have been. Jesus has become their life. It must have been like hearing the news of the loss of a loved one. It must have been almost seemingly, uh, just, you just couldn't live with that kind of news. I remember reading that when Theodore Roosevelt learned the news of the death of his wife, he actually learned of the news of the death of his wife and his mother within hours of each other. There's one single entry in his diary that day. He wrote, the light has gone out of my life. I suppose that's what the disciples must have been feeling. If you're leaving, where was the life? Where is light? You've become everything to me, and now this feels like death. And then what he says next, seemingly as some kind of consultation, took me a while to understand. I, I pounded my head on this verse here for, for all week long. It feels so disconnected. It's like someone pasted this in and they put it in the wrong place. So it's almost like he's saying, fellas, I'm, I'm out. I'm taking off. You're going to say, you can't follow me. You have to stay here. I'm leaving. That's pretty much the saddest thing they had ever heard. And it's almost like he's saying, but don't worry, guys. I've got a new commandment for you. I've got a new law. That'll make you feel better. I'm not sure how that's supposed to make anyone feel better. A new law? A new commandment? In your absence, I get commandments? Now it took me a while to see this. I'm a little slow on the uptake. Here, I think, it was what the Lord is saying. Though I am going away from you, I will never, my love will never be absent from you. Though I am physically absent, my love will never be absent. The love that I have shown to you becomes the love that you show to one another. He says, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So this one to eleven love, Jesus to the eleven love, would, be, would become ten to one love, ten disciples to the other disciple love. Instead of one set of hands washing your feet, now you have ten set of hands washing your feet. Eleven disciples loving one another as Christ had loved them. Ten to one love. Which, if you follow the narrative of the New Testament, becomes 120 to one love. Which becomes a three thousand to one love. Which becomes, in our day, innumerable numbers of people to one love. You see, the disciples have never, will never, ever be without Christ's love. The Great Commission, I remind you, ends with a wonderful promise: Go into all the world and make disciples, teach them all that I have commanded you, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, and I promise you, wherever you go, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. And this is one of the ways our Lord stays with us. He will be with us to the end of the age, in the love that we show to one another. They have one another, the church. Why do you suppose the church is called the body of Christ? The church is Christ's body. Fellow Christian, God has given you a brand new family, brothers and sisters that love you like Christ loved you so that you never are without Christ's love. At a seminar yesterday morning, Sam Alberry said this. For the Christian, the lines between your church family and your biologically fa- biological family are intentionally blurred. I find that to be so wonderfully true. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are as much, if not more, the family that God has given to you than the one that you were born into. They are the one way that you know God will love you to the end. And their love for you and your love for them is how your Savior is presenting, representing His love to you. We represent God's love. We represent God's love to one another. And Jesus says, we represent God's love, Christ's love, to the world by loving one another. Consider what he says in verse 35. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's this Christ like love. Self giving, role reversing love that we've been discussing for three weeks. That is the mark of a true Christian. By this, they will know that you're mine. The love that you show for one another. Christ like, humble, role reversing, foot washing kind of love. I wonder what you're looking for when you're looking to know if someone is a Christian. A confession? confession of faith, their attendance at church, their niceness, maybe, their cornerstone pick with t-shirt. All of those things may be true of a Christian, but they also may not be true of a Christian. I remind you, there are plenty of non-Christians who are nice, who attend church, who even confess belief in Jesus But Jesus says one true mark of a Christian is the same caliber and quality uh, and familial, self-giving, role-reversing love like Christ has shown his disciples. By this, they will know you are mine. Many of us go through seasons where we don't feel much like Christians. We don't see a lot of Christ-like fruit in the way we think, the way we act. But don't you see that God has given you His church, His faith family, to encourage you, to show you His love, to help you to notice and to point out evidences of His grace in your life that we can't see on our own. If you're not meeting with another Christian, another brother or sister in Christ throughout the week, let me just encourage you to sit down with someone In your faith family, to open the Bible and study the scriptures together and talk and pray together and encourage one another in faithfulness. If you're just not doing that, I'm afraid you're setting yourself up to feel disconnected. You're setting yourself up to feel apart from Christ's love and unhealthy spiritually. And I'm eager for all of you to know the joy that I have known in sitting down with a fellow brother in Christ. And talk of the excellencies of Christ and encourage one another in faithfulness. There are a few deeper joys in the friendships that I've experienced that have been formed around God's Word. You may have a leaky sink or something at your house that you want to fix yourself, and that's fine. Do the repair yourself. But please don't take a do it yourself approach to your faith. We were never meant to walk out our Christian faith on our own. Christ-like love for one another are one of the ways that God sustains us in the paradox of this time between his first coming and his second coming. While we wait for the Lord to return, we love one another as Christ loved us. But that's not the only gift God gave his disciples. Jesus also gave them the gift of, of the sustaining power of faith. We see this in verse 36 and following. So Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will afterwards. And Peter said, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Well, Simon Peter didn't like any of this talk of Jesus making, uh, of saying that he's going away. And he wouldn't have any of that. He pipes up, no surprise there, and asks, where are you going? And Jesus doesn't really answer where he's going. Instead, what he does, is he just repeats himself. He just says, I'm going away. Where, you, where I'm going, you can't follow this time. You will follow me afterwards. Of course, Peter, you would. Jesus is speaking of Peter's death as a martyr. He would follow him after. But Jesus is communicating to them that there's an in-between. In-between my first coming and my second coming. We're in that time now. We know that. We're all used to it. We're all used to waking up in the morning and not seeing Jesus' face well, the disciples didn't know that at all. All they had known is the face-to-face life in the kingdom of God with Christ by their side, following him. That's all they had known. And so Peter is rather uncomfortable with the kind of talk of a life without seeing Jesus face-to-face. And so he determines not to let that happen. Oh, you think you're going to leave, do you? You think you can leave me? You don't know my devotion, Jesus. You don't know my love that I have for you. I will die for you. Peter's like that young lover who tells of his undying devotion on his wedding day. I love you so much. You sickness, health, till death do us part. And then when the romance fades and he's left with three kids and a mortgage, he leaves his lover for a more exciting model. Jesus says, Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Will you, though? Boy, because you're not going to make it through the night. You're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up. I don't know how that must have made Peter feel to hear Jesus say that. I mean, he had stuck out his chest, clenched his fist, determination to follow Jesus seemed honorable, seemed brave. But Jesus deflates poor Peter. Shows him that his barreled chest is full of air. His bravery is more bravado. But just take, take a moment and consider the accuracy of the Lord Jesus' prediction here. Here's what he tells Peter. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter, you going to die me three times. Peter, you going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. It's just one more way the Lord is showing his disciples that in the hours that are about to come, he has sovereign control over every detail surrounding his betrayal, surrounding his denial, surrounding his abandonment, surrounding his torture, surrounding his death, and surrounding his eventual res- resurrection. Every single detail which is important. When you're reading this, it may feel like Jesus is being cruel to good old Peter. Put yourself in Peter's shoes. Jesus is all you've known. Jesus is your life. You better believe when he says you're going away and I can't follow. I am going to say I'm following you anyway. Whatever it takes, I'll pay it. I've got to be with you, Jesus. And then Jesus says, you can't follow me. You can't even stay loyal to me for one night. That may seem a very cruel thing for the Lord Jesus to do, but I think that's probably because of the chapter division. (laughs) John didn't put it there. Jesus is still talking. Don't put a chapter division in the middle of the Lord's speech Terrible placement. So when you read the last verse of 13 and the first verse of 14, it goes together and it doesn't feel mean. It feels tender. Jesus is not knocking Peter down. He's hoisting Peter up with his sustaining power. Jesus just said, I'm going away. And if that's not devastating enough, fellas, I'm going away to a place that you can't follow. And if that's not devastating enough, I'm going away to a place that you can't follow. And the head guy, the strongest guy in your group, he's going to deny me tonight. Their heads must have been spinning. So here Jesus, in his tenderness... In his sustaining words of verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled, boys. Believe in God, believe also in me. Don't you see, it's Jesus in this moment, in the upper room, who should have been troubled. He's hours away from being tortured. And yet he, in that moment, is comforting them. He was the one to experience all the trouble that would make them safe. He was about to be betrayed by man so that they would be accepted by God. And his agony would become their comfort. Jesus would soon endure suffering for sin to secure the salvation of his elect. And here he is telling them, believe. Believe in God. Believe in me. John wrote this book in uh, Greek language. And verse one um, could be, in Greek, it could be translated as You believe in God, believe also in me. But he's giving them the second thing that they need to be sustained in his absence a God centered faith. A God centered faith. Believe in me the gospel of John, believing is more than subscribing to something you think is true. <clears throat> you might say, I believe in Abraham Lincoln. That's not how John uses that word. It's not choosing what seems most likely. It means much more than that. John uses the word believe in the same way we might use believe when we say that a skydiver believes when he jumps out of an airplane, his parachute Is going to keep him alive. She trusts in it. Without her parachute, she's dead, so she believes in her parachute. What is going to get the disciples through that dark night? Believing in Jesus like a skydiver believes in her parachute. Peter was not believing in Jesus in this moment. He was believing in himself. Do you see that? He was believing in his own resolve. He was believing in his own determination. Peter's placing his confidence in his love of Jesus. He needed to be placing his confidence in Jesus' love of him. And so Jesus is teaching him, brother, what is getting you through this night? the worst night of your life will not be your determination. It will not be your will. It will not be your resolve. It will not be your love of me. It will be me. Believe in me. I got this. Trust me. Every single detail. I got this. There's so much for us, friends, in this What is going to get you through the dark night of your soul? More to the point, what is going to get you through the time when you've blown it again? When your hands are covered in the same filth that you've covered them in a hundred times before? What are you going to hold on to in that moment when you've cleared your browser history for the 200th time? When you've gossiped again, when you've lashed out again, when you've failed the one you love again, when you keep maintaining the same lie that you've been telling for 10 years, what are you going to believe? Your faith, yourself, your resolve. Your love of God. Friends, we must not trust in our win record to overcome temptation. Don't trust in your Christian maturity. Don't trust in your intimacy with Christ. Don't trust in your knowledge of Scripture. Trust in Christ. Nothing else will sustain you. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Here's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Even tonight, on the eve of the greatest failure of your life, believe me, trust me, hold me God-centered faith will sustain you in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second. Third gift to sustain us is hope for eternity. Hope. Chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to a prepare place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Jesus is talking of heaven, of course. If you're a follower of Jesus, what Jesus is describing here in these these two or three verses is your future home. This is your future, Cornerstone. You might get 80 years on this life, out of this body. But you get forever in heaven. And the Lord is so wonderful in this passage. He gives us four glorious little truths about heaven that are meant to sustain us in this in-between, sustain us in the paradox of the Christian experience. Four truths which are meant to embolden us embolden our hope for heaven, embolden us in our faithfulness today. So we'll look briefly at those and then I'll close. The first thing, heaven is our home. Notice Jesus says, in my Father's house. Home is a place where we belong. It is a place where we're safe it's a place where we're secure. Home is a place where we feel love, give love. And God has placed this longing in all of us for home. You ever notice how mentally devastating it is for someone to um, experience home when home is not safe, when they don't have a home? We're all meant to long for home. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because God has made us to long for our eternal home. One of the reasons we never really feel at home in this life is because we weren't meant to. You may have a wonderful home by God's grace, but ultimately your home will let you down. Your home breaks down. You've got to hang drywall. You've got to fix plumbing. For some of us, home is a lonely place. Sometimes home is filled with a spouse who doesn't love us that much. Some of us long for children to fill our home. And then when we get those children, we're like, not these ones. (laughs) I meant different ones, quiet ones. We love our home. We love our family, but they cannot fulfill us. They were never meant to. They were meant to point us towards the home that will. Of course, we all know that things will break down. Your home will break down. Your relationships will break down. We all know this. So why does it upset us so much when they do? We all know that our cars will disappoint us and our jobs will disappoint us, but why does it disappoint us so much when it happens? Perhaps it's because we're longing for a time when things won't disappoint us. So how about this? How about the next time something or someone in your life fails you when something breaks down and disappoints you and frustrates you? How about instead of throwing a fit like a three-year-old, how about we accept it as a not-so-gentle reminder that this is not our home? How about we let the breakdown of this life stir up in us a longing for heaven? How about instead of whining and complaining about this body which keeps getting sick and breaking down, how about we use that breakdown to rejoice from when the time when it won't break down ever? Don't you think that's why God has made it like this? To keep us longing for heaven? What would be the alternative? If it always worked, we would never want to leave. Second thing, Jesus teaches us that heaven is a place. I think too many Christians have a wispy, flimsy, ethereal view of heaven. You might be surprised to do a study on what the Bible teaches about what heaven is, often speaks of it in very earthly terms, just earthy terms. There are going to be familiar sights and sounds and smells in heaven. Only none of the effects of sin. There'll be no death or disease or decay in heaven. But heaven is a real place with real people people with hands and feet, people with faces, people with hair, long hair glorious hair that blows in the wind. Let me live my dream about what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is a real place. Third, Jesus teaches heaven is a place that Jesus is preparing with rooms for many. Heaven is a place that Jesus is preparing with rooms for many. The blood of Jesus has removed every obstacle in the way. All of the obstacles of sin have been removed to get us into heaven. To prepare, he's, he's there preparing a place for his elect. Christian, those who are trusting in Christ, you have a room there. It has your name on it. And can I just tell you the name God has on your room, God doesn't use those little interchangeable nameplates. So that when you're not living up to his standard, he just and puts a holier Christian name in there. This passage took on a new significance for me when I ignored the chapter division because. Do you see that Peter's hearing this? Peter, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're going to deny me three times before sunrise, but trust me, Peter, you still got a room. Peter's sin did not change Jesus' mind about Peter. I still got a room. Still has your name on it. I'm not taking your name off. Putting someone else in. Same is true of us. Some of you need to hear this. Some of you are battling besetting sins. Reoccurring sins. Sins that you have spent a decade warring against and you are weary from the battle. I just want you to hear the words of the Lord. Believe in me. Trust me. I still have a room with your name on it. I haven't given up on you. I will keep winning you to myself. You keep trusting. You keep believing. Friends, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So you keep fighting sin with every ounce of strength that the Lord supplies. Fourth and finally, best of all, verse three, heaven is where Jesus is. I will come again and take you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. Do you know what makes heaven wonderful? Probably sinlessness. That makes it wonderful. Probably the sights and the smells. That makes them wonderful. It would probably be the glorious city of God that we live in. That will be wonderful. Wonderful. Heaven will be wonderful because of the sea of glass and its golden roads and crystal clear streams and undying fruit trees. Probably the music will be wonderful. Probably all of those things will be great. But you know what the angels say is the greatest thing about heaven? God's there. That's where God lives. That's what makes heaven great, is that Jesus says, I will bring you to myself, that where I am, you will always be. Always be together. Oh, how I can't wait for that day. A Christian longs for all the glories of heaven, where the way C.S. Lewis put it is, all the bad things come untrue. We long for that, but more than anything, we long to be with God. We long to be with our Savior. Pastor John Piper once asked, um, if we could get heaven, all of the stuff that comes with heaven, sinlessness, the glories, the celestial city, the rivers, the streams, the city, the sea of glass, the golden roads, the riches, if you could get all of those things, but not God, would you still want heaven? If you're a true Christian, that's an easy answer. What are those things without Him? I'll tell you what those things are without Him. Hell. This is our blessed assurance. This is the hope to sustain us. I will come again and take you to myself. Friends, I'm just asking in the coming weeks that you lean into this. Let that longing grow. When things break down, when sin ravages your heart, when you endure the dark night, trust the Lord. He's coming again to bring you to himself and to give you a room. Amen. Let's stand for the prayer of confession. Will you pray with me? Lord and Father, God of majesty and wonder, you have been unremittingly kind to us again. The words of your Son have come. And they are life to us. Will you send your spirit to apply these words to our life? Will you soften our hearts to receive this word that we've heard? Lord, you know that life in this in-between is hard on us. Every day we feel the gravity of sin. And we seek to live our own way. So many ways, Lord, we have abandoned Your Son. And while we may not deny Him with our confession, we regularly deny Him in the way we live. Jesus taught us to love selflessly, but Lord, how often do we live selfishly? He taught us to defer to one another we have sought to dominate one another. We have not loved one another as He loved us. And so we ask You to forgive us, Father. Renew in us a right spirit. Would You grant that Your grace would come and help us turn from this sin to seek one another and love them as Christ loved us. Jesus taught us to believe in Him, to trust His ways, done everything but, Lord. Like our brother Peter, we've stuck out our chest, sucked in the air of pride, and sought to live our own way. We see Jesus' example to lay down his life, and we do the opposite. We protect ourselves. And this is sin, Lord, and we ask you to forgive us. And we ask that you would enable us by your power to trust Jesus in the dark nights and the loneliness and the loss. And Lord, we have lost the hopeful longing for our future. We're reminded how often Jesus thought of heaven and that reminds us how little we think of it. As we turn our longing for heaven into a desire for earthly things which always disappoint us. And then when they disappoint us, we curse your name. What wretched creatures are we? And so we ask you for your mercy, Lord. Not because we are repentant. Not because we deserve it but only because you are good and infinitely full of mercy and kind. All these blessings you have given to hell-deserving sinners like us. And so we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to live this way, in a way that is fitting of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, and for Jesus' sake we pray.